church. Good morning and welcome to Riverside. So glad all of you are here today. For all of you who are joining us for Church Online, thank you again for being with us. We're glad you're with us. I know it's the end of spring break, so a lot of you are back, a lot of you are home. If that's you, welcome back. Welcome home. Really glad uh, that we can all be together today. We're we're leaning into this series right now as we kind of lead up to Easter. Uh, This idea that God is for us. And if you haven't been here the last few weeks, if you're just catching up, I I can catch up real quick. Here's the big idea behind this series. We believe that this is true. Even in our darkest moments, even when we have doubts and fears, even when we forget who we are or we lose our way, we believe that this is true, that God is for us. He has always been for us. He has never not been for us. This is who God is. He is a God that is with us, and he is a God who is for us. And what we want to do as we sort of lead up in these days to Easter, to Resurrection Sunday, is is remind each other of this truth and remember that this is true. And one of the ways we want to do that is by by taking some time to to remember and to remind each other. I want to ask some friends to come down. We've done this already once. We want to do it again today and pass out these cards. If you've done this already, I want to invite you to do it again. If you haven't done this yet, I would love for you to do this. This is a simple card. And on here, what I would love for you to do is write down a time in your life where maybe you couldn't see it then. But looking back on that moment, you now know. You can now see something you couldn't see then. That in the middle of that hardship, in the middle of that difficulty, in the, in the middle of that adversity, whatever it was, God was with you and God was for you. And, and, and from that time, you have a story. You have a testimony. And, and every testimony truly is a story that comes from adversity that proves that God was with you. That he was for you. And we want to remind each other and we want to remember these, these stories, these times that tell the story of God's faithfulness in our lives. If you haven't done this yet, I would love for you to do this. Before you leave today, go out into the foyer. We're going we're to collect these later on in our time together. But we're going to hang these on the wall in the foyer. It's on your left as you leave today. And there's already stories up there, over 100 of them. And if you have a chance, just read a few of them, and I promise you, you'll be blessed, you'll be encouraged. It's incredible to read these stories of God's faithfulness in so many of your lives. We need to remember, and we need to be reminded of this truth, that God really is who he says he is, that he's for us. And every testimony, it comes from an adversity where God had the opportunity to prove that he really is who he says he is, that he really is faithful. As you do that, I want to begin today with seven words that, that could have the power to change your life. I know that's a big statement, but seven words that could change your life. Here they are. You don't have to do that anymore. All right, let me explain. Uh, when I was in college, uh, I worked at a paint store. Uh, my dad was, when I was growing up, my dad was a, a teacher. He taught Bible and he directed the chorus at a Christian school in Montgomery, Alabama, where, where I grew up. And so in the summers, he had the summers off and he had a side hustle. He had a handyman business and he would do a lot of painting, right? And I loved to go with him. I loved to work with him because I figured out if I went along with dad, he would give me a little money and I could work and earn a little money and do some things that I wanted to do. And I, I loved that. Because of that, we, we bought a lot of paint, especially in the summer. And we got to know the guy we bought paint from. His, his name was Waldo. And Waldo was famous in Montgomery, Alabama for, for one thing. 
He could match any paint, any, any paint color you had. He had a real eye for color. These days, if you need to match a color paint for your house, for your wall, for whatever, you go into any paint store, they put that paint chip up under an electronic eye, and the computer scans it and reads it, and it spits out a formula. But, but back in the day, before there were electronic eyes and scanners and computers, like people did this, right? And Waldo was really good at it. He was so good at it that he opened his own paint store. And when he opened his paint store, uh, he asked me to come work for him. And, and I did, and I loved it. And as long as I worked for Waldo, I had to do whatever he said. I had to move paint. I had to stock paint. I had to restock paint. I had to mix paint. I had to carry paint. I had to load paint. Like whatever Waldo said, I was obligated to do. But as soon as I stopped working for Waldo, guess what? I was no longer obligated to do anything he said. I tell you that story because of this. I think, I think a lot of us, a lot of times, we forget. In fact, we often forget who we're obligated to and what we're obligated to do. We often forget who we're obligated to and what we're obligated to do. And so you know what happens for a lot of us is we end up doing things. Things that so often we regret. So often the, the moment we do it, we're like this, this ocean wave of shame and guilt. It just washes over us, right? But we, we have this way of, of rationalizing it. We say things like, man, it's just been a hard day. Or I'll do better tomorrow. But right now I just need this. We say things like, like, I'm just predisposed to this, or I can't help it, or this is just the way I was made. But the truth is, we do things, and we know that we shouldn't do them, because as soon as we do them, we regret that we did them. And when we're filled with this, this shame and this regret, why do we do that? We do that because we so often forget, don't we? We forget who we're obligated to and what we're obligated to do. As soon as I stopped working for Waldo, I didn't have to do anything he said anymore. I was no longer obligated to do that. For a lot of us, we've forgotten. We've forgotten who we're obligated to and what we're obligated to do. The good news is that if, if you are a follower of Jesus, there is good news for you. If you have your Bible or if you have the YouVersion Bible app, I would love to invite you to open up to Romans chapter 8. What we're doing in these days leading up to Easter is we're working through Romans chapter 8, maybe one of the greatest chapters in, in all of the Bible and all of Scripture. Today we want to we lean into these verses in Romans 8, uh, verses 12 through 17. Uh, Paul is going to speak directly into this tension here of, of how we so often forget who we're obligated to and what we're obligated to do. A lot of us, what happens is that we don't even know why we do what we do. We, we don't know why we, we keep falling into the same traps or into the same pitfalls. The answer to that, of course, it's elusive but also incredibly simple. It's sin. That's the reason. We have these sinful urges, these sinful desires, these things that we feel like we're compelled to do and we don't feel like we have any power to change it. But Paul wants to speak into that tension and I want you to hear what he says in Romans 8, and we'll start in verse 12, he says, Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation. Now, if you have like an actual paper Bible, you might want to just take a, a pen and underline those two words real quick. If you've got your, on your phone, highlight it or screenshot it. This is truth. This is power. 
This is hopefully encouraging for you today. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. No obligation. Paul says, therefore, because of all of this, because of, of all that I've said leading up to this moment, and you may think, well, what has Paul said? If you've missed the last couple of weeks, uh, let me just remind you of what Paul has said so far in chapter 8, okay? In chapter 8, he said this, because, verse 1, because there is no condemnation for us. In verse 2, because we belong to Jesus and because the Holy Spirit has set us free. In verse 3, he says, because, because God sent Jesus in a body. And because Jesus sacrificed his life for our sins. In verse 4, he says, because Jesus fully satisfied the law. In verse 5 and in verse 6 and in verse 9, Paul says over and over and over again, because we allow the Holy Spirit to control our minds. In verse 9, he says, because the Spirit of the living God is living in us. In verse 10, he says, because Christ lives in us. And because the Holy Spirit gives us life and because we have been made right with God in verse 11, because the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the grave. Therefore, because of all this, here's what I want you to know. My brothers and sisters in Jesus, you've got no obligation to do whatever it is that your sinful nature urges you or compels you to do. You've got no obligation to do that anymore. The truth is, the reality is, and Paul understood this, for them, just like it is for us today, we've all got sinful urges. We've all got these desires, these temptations that, that come along and come our way. And the truth is, everybody struggles. And, and maybe you just need to be reminded of that today. Maybe you need, you need to hear somebody say that today, right? That everybody struggles. We, we all have these sinful urges and desires. Everybody struggles. What, what happens, what our enemy, the devil, Satan himself is really good at is, is tempting us to believe this lie, to tell us that this is the truth, that whatever it is you struggle with, you're the only one that struggles with that. But that's a lie. The truth is everybody struggles. Everyone is tempted. And a lot of us, we have, we have this burden and maybe some of us feel it more than others, I don't know. But some of you, you carry around this burden, like you have to be perfect all the time. You have to do everything exactly right. And maybe for those of you who at one time in your life, you made the decision to follow Jesus and you stepped into these waters of baptism and you gave your life to Christ, you feel like because of that, you have to be perfect, like you shouldn't struggle with whatever it is you struggle with anymore. Let me just take that burden off your shoulders. You don't have to be perfect. Maybe you've never heard this before. God isn't calling you to be perfect. But he does want you to understand this truth. That you're no longer obligated to do anything that your sinful nature urges you to do. You're no longer obligated. Whatever addiction you're stuck in, whatever habitual sin you're trapped in, you're no longer obligated to follow those desires, to follow those impulses those urges, whatever it is for you. It might be gossip, it might be lying, it might be cheating, it might be overeating, overindulging, overspending, over whatevering. It may be lust, it may be something else, fill in the blank with your vice, your sin, your temptation, your struggle, whatever it is. Here's the good news. And by the way, this is good news. You don't have any obligation to give in to any of those desires, any of those urges, any of those 
temptations. Some of you, maybe you haven't even named it yet. And I'll tell you a secret. As long as it goes unnamed, it will have power and control over you, okay? I think this is why Jesus, in really all of Scripture, speaks so much about the spiritual act and discipline and practice of confession. Because as soon as you name something, as soon as you speak it, it loses that power and that control over your life. You have to name it. But once you name it, you don't have to feel obligated anymore to do whatever it is that you've been tempted to do. But Paul says, here's what happens. He says in verse 13, if you live by its dictates, doing whatever it is that your sinful desires tempt you to do, if you, if you live like that, if you live obligated to those things, he says you will die. So Paul doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't mince words. He's, he's not going to be ambiguous or vague about this. If you continue to be obligated to those sinful desires, whatever they are for you, that ends in death for you. That's a one-way street. It ends, it, it, that, only, that story ends one way. In your death, in your demise, in your destruction. And just, I know we've said it before, but remember, for Paul, death, he's not talking about physical death. That, that may end in physical death for you. That's entirely possible, depending on what it is you're up against. But what Paul's talking about is spiritual death. And for Paul, the word death means separation from God. Both now in this moment, as, as long as you stay obligated to that sin, whatever it is, and potentially eternal separation from God. That's death for Paul. If you continue to remain obligated to those sinful urges and desires, that ends one way. That ends in death. That's how that story ends. The opposite of that, the opposite of that is experiencing what Paul says next in verse 13. He says, but if through the power of the Spirit, this is the Holy Spirit he's talking about, you put to death the, the deeds of your sinful nature, then you will live. If instead you choose, and this only happens, by the way, you can't accomplish this by your own willpower. This only happens through the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. But if you decide, along with the help of the Holy Spirit, who is your helper, to put to death the deeds of that sinful nature, whatever that is for you, then you will live. How do we put to death? How do we put to death the deeds of our sinful nature? That happens one way. That happens in your baptism. That happens in your baptism. When you step into these waters of baptism, and it doesn't have to be these waters, it can be any waters. But when you step into the waters of baptism, Paul said this before in Romans 6, we've talked about it before. But what literally happens in your baptism is you die to yourself. You put to death your sinful nature. In a very real way, you put yourself to death. You die to yourself. You're buried. That's why here at Riverside, when we baptize someone, you're literally submerged, immersed underwater, right? You're being buried. You've, you've died to yourself. Now you are buried with Christ. And then you're resurrected, raised up out of the waters of baptism so that you can experience new life. How do you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature? It happens in your baptism. That's where you die to yourself. You're buried with Christ and then you are raised to new life. This is what happens in that moment. But you know, especially if you've, if you've made this decision, if you've been buried with Christ and raised to new life, if you've been baptized, you know this is true. You know that once you come out of those waters of baptism, once you've been resurrected with Christ, 
the, the problem is, is that those sinful urges and desires, they don't go away. I wish they did. I'll be honest. I wish that the day I was baptized, the day that I stepped up out of those baptismal waters, that I, I no longer struggled with the things that I struggle with. That would be awesome. But that's not the way it works. And some of you know this too. And some of you, this is very discouraging. <laughs> you, you wish you would no longer struggle with whatever it is you struggle with. But the truth is, you do. I think that's why Paul would later write these words in Romans 12, verse 1. He said this to the same group of people. He says, I, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. And let them be a living sacrifice. You've got to let your life be a living sacrifice. Sacrifice. I, I know none of us, I don't think, grew up, you know, understanding sacrifice or sacrificial systems. The kind of sacrifice that was practiced in the day of Jesus where they would literally take an animal and they would place it on the altar as a sacrifice. I can tell you this much. I don't know a whole lot about it, but I can tell you this much. Whenever they sacrificed an offering to God, an animal to God, they always killed it first before they put it on the altar. Do you know why? Because if you put a, a live sacrifice in the altar, you know what it's going to do? It's going to climb off the altar. <laughs> Paul says you've got to be a living sacrifice. The problem with being a living sacrifice is we, we want to crawl off the altar. But Paul says you've got to put to death continually those things that are trying to put you to death. You've got to keep putting to death those things that are trying to put you to death. Let your life be a living sacrifice. Let your life be a living sacrifice. And the good news is you can the good news is we can. You have to remember that there's a space between, right? We forget this sometimes, but there's a space between. This is true in every area of life, but especially the spiritual life. There's, there's a space between a stimuli and a response, right? For a lot of us, what happens is something happens and we react immediately, but there's actually a space between there. There's a space between the temptation and the decision. There's a space between the stimulus and the response, and Paul says in the very next verse, in verse 14, that in that space, in that in-between space, you have to remember this truth. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. In the space between the temptation and the decision, in the space between the, the stimuli and the response, remember this truth. Remember who you are, you are sons of God, you are daughters of God, you are children of God. And as children of God, live from this identity. For a lot of you, if someone to ask you, who are you? Well, if you were to come to me and say, hey, who are you? I might tell you, well, my name is Corey Trevathan. I'm the preacher at the Riverside Church. I've been here for almost seven years. I live in uh, Louisville, Texas, about 10 minutes down the street here, not very far at all. I'm married to my beautiful wife, Alicia. We've been married for almost 23 years, praise God. Uh, we've got three amazing, beautiful children, and uh, we've got a crazy dog named Belle. She's a golden retriever. Uh, I, love, uh, I love to go running in the mornings. You'll see me running around town probably if you're up early enough. Uh, i got to get that done early because then i got to get all the kids to school. It's just a crazy life that we're in right now, but we love it. Um, these are the kinds of things that I would tell you about myself. These are the kinds of things you would probably tell me about yourself. And all of those things are good, right? And all of those things may be true. But all the things I just told you, that's not who I am. I told you about me, but that's not who I am. 
Your name is not who you are. What you do for work is not who you are. Where you live is not who you are. Your family is not who you are. Your hobbies and interests, the kinds of foods you like, the kinds of things that you do, that's not who you are. Paul says, this is who you are. And you got to remember this truth. Your identity, you are a son. You are a daughter. You are a child of God. This is what happens in your baptism. This is what happens when you are united with Christ. You have the spirit of the living God living inside of you and you become a child of God. But Paul says this next in verses 15 and 16. He says, so you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. We just sang this truth a minute ago. We're no longer slaves to fear. No, instead you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now... Because he's adopted us, because now we are sons and daughters of God, now we call out to him, we cry out to him these words, Abba, literally Daddy, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that this is true. You are, I am, we are God's children. It's as if Paul is saying to these early Christians living some 2,000 years ago, the same thing he wants to say to you and me today, living in DMV, DFW in 2022, this is who you are. Remember, remember who you are and remember whose you are. Uh, It may be one of the most iconic movie scenes of all time. We have any Star Wars fans in the room? It's okay if you're not. Okay, there's only three of us, two of us, four of us. Good. The rest of you, go home and watch Star Wars today. You can, you can tell somebody I told you to do that. Star Wars Episode Five: Empire Strikes Back, unbelievable movie, unbelievable moment when Darth Vader, the evil Darth Vader, has this epic lightsaber battle with Luke Skywalker. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Remember this scene? Get a few more hands. Y'all are waking up. Thank you for joining me uh, today. It's great to see you. Uh, so there's this epic lightsaber battle between good and evil, Darth Vader, the, the enemy, and Luke Skywalker, right? And in, with, one, with one swipe of the lightsaber, Darth Vader chops off the hand of Luke Skywalker. Don't worry, it's not bloody. They didn't use blood back then. It just, it just came off. I don't know what happened. <laughs> Loses his hand, and now he's hanging on for dear life, right? But Darth Vader doesn't want to kill Luke Skywalker. Luke Skywalker thinks he's trying to kill him, but, but Darth Vader doesn't want to kill Luke Skywalker. He wants him to join him on the dark side. He believes that together they'll have enough power to rule the galaxy. So Darth Vader looks at Luke Skywalker hanging on for dear life. And he says to him, Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. I wish I had that James Earl Jones voice, right? Doesn't have the same impact, but you get the point. Luke replies, he told me enough. He told me you killed him. Now, at this point in the movie, if you've seen this movie, even if you haven't, you probably know this. At this point in the movie, Darth Vader responds with what may be the most misquoted line in all of movie history. What most people think Darth Vader says is, do you know, Luke, I am your father. Again, doesn't. You need need James Earl Jones. Luke, I am your father. That's not what Darth Vader says. What he actually says is this. No. In other words, no, I didn't kill your father. No, I am 
your father. And in this moment, Luke discovers the answer to the question that he's been searching for all of his life. Who is my father? And in this moment, his worst nightmare is realized. His enemy, Darth Vader, who's almost completely given in to the dark side. That's his father. And this truth almost, it almost overwhelms him. Because in that moment, Luke realized something that all of us in the room understand, right? That as children, we bear the image of our father. It's something all of us understand. There's a sense in which all of us identify with this. All of us, we know what it means to to identify with, to bear the image of our earthly fathers and our earthly mothers. But I think what Paul wanted these Christians to know some 2,000 years ago, these followers of Jesus living in the ancient city of Rome, these were people, by the way, that he had never met up to this point in his life, but, but he wanted to encourage them and he wanted to teach them this truth. That your identity is found in your heavenly father. And when you find your identity in your heavenly father, when you, when you realize that this is who you are, you are a son of God, you are a daughter of God, everything changes for you. You are, no, you are no longer under any obligation to do anything that your sinful desires urge you to do. You don't work for Waldo anymore. You're no longer obligated. And, and when you come to that moment of temptation, when you come to that moment of, 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 of feeling completely compelled or overwhelmed or whatever it is, you got to remember there's a space between the temptation and the decision. There's a space between the stimulus and the response. And in that space, you get to remember and you get to choose, this is who I am. And if you want to break the cycle of that sin in your life, if you want to break the cycle of that addiction or that habitual sin or whatever it is that's going on for you, it starts right here. It starts with remembering who you really are, who your father is. And here's the promise, when you do, when you cry out his name, Abba, Father, when you call on him to help you in that moment of crisis, his Holy Spirit is living inside of you, helping you. He is your helper. And this changes everything. Your identity, it changes the direction of your life. Your identity in Christ changes the direction of life. And that's so important because there's going to be a moment and it may happen later today. If not, it'll probably happen tomorrow. And if not, it's definitely going to happen one day this week before Sunday rolls around again. I can promise you that much. You're going to bump into something. You're going to have a moment. Uh, More than likely, you're going to be tired, fatigued, worn out because of that you're going to be weak and you need to know this about your enemy he knows you really really well he's been tempting people for who knows how long he's really good at his job he's going to come to you in a moment when when you're not at your best and he's going to present you with an opportunity to make a decision that's not going to be for your good 
and it's not gonna be for God's glory. But he is gonna provide you an opportunity to step into a moment where you're gonna feel some sort of relief or satisfaction or escape. And in that moment, what I wanna ask you to do is remember who you are. Remember who your father is. Before you respond to that person who hurt you, before you post that, before you click on that, before you say that, before you drink that, before you take that, before you do that, whatever that is for you, remember who you are. Remember who your father is. Remember you are a son. You are a daughter of God. You're no longer obligated to do anything your sinful nature urges you to do. If anything, you're indebted to the one who loves you so much he gave his life for you. Church, if you would, let's stand. I want to ask our friends to come back into the room and they're going to pass these baskets. If you took time to to write a story or a thought on one of these cards of how you know God is with you, God is for you. They wanna collect those and we're gonna hang these on the wall. And and again, let me just remind you, take a chance or take some time and take take the chance to read some of these cards and and be reminded and and remember that this is true, that God is with us and God is for us. This is who God is. He's never not been for you. He is always for you. He is on your side. But before we close, I wanna say two things first. If you're in the room today, you're watching online, for whatever reason up to this point in your life, you have not been baptized. You haven't stepped into the waters of baptism. You haven't confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I wanna ask you to think about that. We're 28 days away from Easter, 28 days away from Resurrection Sunday, the day that we remember that Jesus rose from the grave. And here at Riverside, that's Baptism Sunday. It's a day that we set aside to say, if, if that's something you're thinking about, if that's something that you want to do, we would love to see you be baptized into Christ on that day. You can get baptized any day of the week. I don't care. But I think there's something special about Easter. To be resurrected with Christ on the same day that Jesus was resurrected from the grave, that's special. If that's you, I want to invite you over these next 28 days, maybe today, maybe one day this week, I want to ask you to find somebody and talk to somebody. Talk to me talk to a parent, talk to one of our elders, talk to one of the adults in the room that you respect and look up to. The reason that's the invitation is because your success as a follower of Jesus, it all hinges on relationship. And we don't want you to make that decision outside of relationship with someone who can walk alongside you and walk along with you. But in 28 days, it's gonna be Baptism Sunday here at Riverside. And I would love to see some of you step into those waters of baptism, be baptized with Christ, die to yourself, be resurrected to new life. For the rest of you, those of you who've made that decision and you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear the last words that Paul speaks in this section in verse 17. He says, since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. And that's good news. But If we are to share his glory, we must also share in his suffering. What does that mean? We're going to talk about this more next week, but I want you to know this. To be a son, to be a daughter of God, to be a child of God, it doesn't exempt you from a life of suffering. Paul says we must also suffer with him. 
But I want you to know this before you leave, and we'll talk more about it next week. Those early Christians, whenever they suffered, whatever they suffered, they always rejoiced. Why? Their perspective had shifted. As sons and daughters of God, whenever they suffered, whatever they suffered, in their mind, from their point of view, they understood that God counted them worthy to suffer with Christ. Today, as you think about where you are in life, as you try to think, is God really with me and for me in this moment? Even when I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death, the answer is yes. God is with you. God is for you. God is for us. And as you go into this week, I want you to walk with that confidence and that faith, believing that this is true, that God is on your side. Let's sing.